1: From BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from USA Today and MMA Junkie, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's pretty gross out there.
0: It's actually slightly less gross than it was yesterday, where I think we reached peak grossness.
1: Yeah, we're just, uh, you're speaking relatively, though. That's true. Slightly less gross than yesterday. And let's be honest, yesterday was the grossest day on record.
0: It was. You woke up that day and you felt like, All right, so I'm basically living in The Road, the Cormac McCarthy novel.
1: Yep, the the air is just yellow. You can see it moving past your house.
0: And it's weirdly depressing. But I got good news for you. You know what this week is? What is this week? This week is the start of the fall hockey season.
1: Oh, boy. That Uh. means,
0: Chad, that between now and basically the end of June, you won't have to go a single week without updates from my hockey team.
1: You got anything to uh, to tantalize us for the season? Anything you want to open up with here?
0: You know, I'm just really excited to go out there and give a okay, 110%. come on, come on. <laughs>
1: just focus on what you can control, and God willing, the, the scoreboard good Lord will sort
0: out. Yeah. I mean, we're focusing on the process. That's what I'm telling you right now.
1: That's dumb. Which Everything that you just <laughs> said is dumb.
0: So you're going to come to a game? No, hell no. I can get
1: you good seats. Aren't they at like 11 o'clock at night? Sometimes. See, I've already been asleep for hours at that point.
0: I know, you could wake
1: up. By 11, I'm already probably waking up for the first time to a screaming
0: child. Sit in the seats, get your little blanket, put over your knees like an old lady, sit there at the hockey arena.
1: Thermos, bring a thermos maybe of uh hot cocoa and uh peppermint schnapps. There you go. <laughs> Starting to sound better and better.
0: You know how to do this.
1: Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Fulton and Rourke. Fulton Rourke is a men's grooming company that thoughtfully creates products based on the way guys get ready. Each of their fine goods is built around fragrance and function, designed to make getting ready less of a boring routine and more of an enjoyable ritual. Everything is designed to go anywhere you do, from your gym bag to your
0: carry-on, even your pants pocket. Tell them Ben, that's right, Chad. Fulton and Rourke are one of the CME's oldest and most loyal sponsors, and this week they've got something pretty special cooked up. Since we started running podcast spots for Fulton and Rourke months ago, we know that some of our listeners have wanted to try out one of their solid colognes, but wanted to see some samples first to get their nose on. Well. As as of today, you guys are out of excuses. There's The Fulton & Rourke Fragrance Card Sample Pack includes cards with all five of the Fulton & Rourke Solid Cologne fragrances so that you guys can check them all out and decide which suits you best. Each sample pack comes with $12 store credit, so even though it'll cost you $12 to buy the sample pack, you'll actually get it all back on your next purchase.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. You get this classy black envelope in the mail that makes it look like you're getting invited to one of those parties from Eyes Wide Shut, where Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman would wear those crazy animal masks. Oh, I
0: always wanted to go to one of those.
1: But inside... You get a short pamphlet describing all of Fulton and Rourke's solid cologne offerings and then the actual sample cards, which obviously contain samples of each fragrance. You get a sample of the Hatteras, the Shackleford, the Tybee, which is my personal favorite, Clearwater, as well as Captiva, Captiva. and that $12 purchase credit that Ben just told you about.
0: Just as a note, the coupon code CME is not valid on sample card purchases, but it still works for everything else. So if you still want to pick up some of Fulton & Rourke's Foamless Shaving Cream, the wonderful bar soap, their badass dop kit, or handy face wash, you can go online today to FultonAndRourke.com, use that promo code CME to get 15% off. Stop dragging your damn feet. Try it today.
1: We got music again this week from The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out at Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, on Twitter at The Fifth Element, or on SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. As always, that's the word the with an A, so it's more like that. Don't confuse people. And the number five. They know that by now. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Stefan Struve dropped a three and four, including three KOs or TKOs after his third rounder to Alexander Volkov on Saturday. Not going to make a joke, just going to say, you guys know what probably happens next. And in round number two, this weekend at UFC 215, Demetrius Johnson finally gets that fight against Ray Borg that he sort of, kind of wanted, since the UFC wouldn't give him that other thing that he wanted in the first place. So, we good? And in round number three, Amanda Nunez returns to give fans that fight they sort of kind of wanted that first time before their fight got scratched at UFC 213. God, can you feel the excitement? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail. Oh, we're getting this out of the way first thing. I like this. Okay. From Cesar Fernandez, he writes, So, Zabit Megomed Sharapov. Nailed it. Pretty close? Yeah. Is is Zabit Megomed Sharapov the new John Jones, or is he the new Alex Caceres?
0: Oh, wow. Are those the, the two ends of the spectrum?
1: I mean, I think, I feel like that's a, if you're gonna have bookends, there you go, right? I mean, not to to disrespect Alex Caceres, because... The more we see of him, the more he kind of goes out there and and turns out to be kind of a tough fight for anybody. But I guess we're just talking about maybe on the superstar spectrum since uh, the Mega Man went out there and, uh, and turned a lot of heads this past weekend.
0: Yeah, it was fun to watch. I mean, let's take a step back and realize, okay, you did beat a guy without a Wikipedia page on a fight pass only event in Rotterdam in the middle of the Saturday afternoon. So, you know. Not quite jumping in with both feet in the the biggest possible stage, and we still have plenty left to to see before we all the questions are answered but yeah i I don't blame anybody who wants to go ahead and get a little preliminary excitement, but don't even come in here with this john jones shit don't don't start doing the Dana White thing where every season of the ultimate fighter you tell me you got the next anderson Silva on there let's just let's slow our roll a little bit there, so
1: where to start with this? Mike Santiago the guy who lost via uh, second round uh, rear naked choke to Zabit Magomed Uh he came off the Dana White Contender Series, correct? Right. And was also a late fill-in for... Uh, who was he supposed to fight? Uh, Nick Hein? Nick Hain? Nick, Nick, hein? Nick hein,
0: the, the German uh, TV actor and general celebrity. So does this...
1: What does this bode for the future of the Dana White Contender series if basically the first guy who wins that wins one of those contracts and shows up actually in the UFC is sort of used as cannon fodder for your man, Zabit Magomed Sharapov?
0: First of all, are you surprised, motherfucker?
1: I'm not surprised, but it seems like we're being sold a different sort of bill of goods on the Contender Series, are we not? Dude's dreams are coming true. <laughs> yes,
0: yes right? they are. Well, come on. I think that we could all kind of look at that Contender Series and tell what its main value is to the UFC, which is that, first and foremost, uh content, relatively cheap content that it can just keep kind of churning out. Uh, you know, those guys make basically half what the – you know, not official but in act like the actual minimum that we've seen in practice. Uh, most guys coming to the USC first first time make no less than ten and ten. The contender series guys all make five and five. You know, you only got four or five fights on the on the night or the afternoon really on a Tuesday afternoon. So you don't spend a whole lot of money to generate this content and then you get to get somebody under a contract that may or may not be a great contract for them first coming in because they're just so happy to be to have a space in the UFC, so maybe they're not super concerned with that. And then, yeah, it makes sense to me that you would then look at those guys as like they're still in the position where they're not in a, like in any position to turn down fights or make demands. They gotta kind of jump. You know, when you say jump, you say we need somebody to fill in here. They're probably gonna feel like, yeah, I need to take every opportunity I possibly can.
1: Yeah, it just. You know, you see Mike Santiago sort of become this stepping stone uh, and it makes me it makes me wonder what kind of bargain that is to sign up for the contender series. You know what I mean? Because uh, they're bringing these guys in who are uh, touted prospects from the independent circuit or guys who have I think a couple of them already had like UFC fights or maybe ultimate fighter appearances and they kind of washed out. Uh, and they're trying to get back in the UFC. So it's not like you have tremendous bargaining power. It's not like you're, you are uh, in a position where, you like you said, can turn down offers. But at the same time, uh, is stuff like this going to make guys think twice about signing up to go fight somebody else in an empty warehouse uh, if the best case scenario is a couple months later you're fighting Zabid Megomed Sharapov over there in Rotterdam?
0: I mean, it should make them think twice about it, but I don't know if it actually will because I think just the, the fighter mentality in a lot of ways is to assume that things are going to go much better for you than they have in, other, in, in the cases of other people who did the exact same things that you did. I think that's just kind of something we've seen in action over and over again. But I mean, if what you're telling me is that the fight game seems like it uses people and uh, spits them out, I yeah. guess that will not be breaking news for anybody who's been paying attention.
1: Ah, uh, well, we've we've done our best to pour cold water on the situation. Let's talk a little bit about the man himself, Zabit
0: Magomedsharipov. And can we just say Zabit, just like the the like Dan Hardy and John Gooden kind of agreed to do on the broadcast? Let's just say Zabit. As far as first ourselves. names
1: go, it does sound like a like a recurring feature on a morning drive time radio program, <laughs> like. Uh, he would do a prank phone call and then at the end of it, he'd be like, You got Zabit down. And <laughs> that's have not a bad. Bunch of sound effects.
0: That's, see, I was going to go with like an alien overlord in an episode of the Twilight Zone, like well, 1950s it. idea of like Martians. Zabit well, the, the Martian King. You,
1: you got an, another member of the Dagestan Knuckle Game Cartel here. Uh, 26 year old Zabit, uh, comes into the, uh, to the UFC, obviously picks up a lot of hype. It makes me feel. Makes me flash back to this podcast maybe a year or two ago. Uh I see that his nickname is Zabist. So haha, there you go. A little play on words there. Yeah, Zabist. no, I get it. Thank you. Uh when I think we warned people, like if you're gonna be around this sport, uh you better get used to pronouncing these these long Russian names because if you look at the unsigned prospect list in any weight class four or five of those top 10 guys are all seemingly uh coming out of this region of the world and now you got uh Zabid magomed showing up uh right on time becoming a new uh highly touted fast moving climbing dagestani fighter in the ufc
0: yeah and calling out artem lobov at the end just just so we can all have a Good goddamn time. How about that?
1: Yeah, I mean I, I uh the, the uh the Natalie attired Artem Lobov, did you notice at the uh Mayweather versus McGregor sort of weekend? Lobov was out there looking like maybe he's uh he didn't get all the suits that Connor McGregor has, but maybe got one from the same guy, the Connor McGregor suit guy.
0: You're saying that when Connor McGregor was doing that interview with a bunch of garment bags hanging up behind him, that maybe your boy the Russian hammer figured well, he won't miss one. he won't miss just one of those <laughs> right. suits
1: yeah, uh would watch though, right,
0: yeah, definitely would watch, and I appreciate a man coming in there with a plan, and even though it does start to feel like okay, you're calling out Artem Lobov, huh, so you're just going you're kind ease your way into u f c competition you're not you're not shooting for the big fish right away, you're shooting for somebody who we know their name, but they're not super dangerous.
1: Well yeah, and isn't that kind of what we talk about? We always kind of want from these these debutants. Yeah, no it works for me. We don't want me. we don't want Zabit to go out there and like what's Jose Aldo doing? We don't want him to get on the mic and say that. Uh so it seemed like yeah, that's a good uh that's a good first step for a good second step I guess it would be for him. Did it seem to you like a lot of these guys that won fights at UFC Fight Night 115 uh were prepared? because there was there was more than one call out on this show several people got called out it made me wonder if uh if maybe there was some ear whispering going on some backstage like when you go out there if you win be ready like have something to say
0: do you even need that to happen like through official channels anymore is it not just like a known enough thing that if you're paying attention at all in this sport you can you see Fans and media people and other fighters and everybody kind of saying, like, hey, this is probably how you should be ready to do this. Yeah, but doesn't it seem like it's taken people a long time to catch on to that? And still didn't totally catch on. You got the main event uh, where Alexander Volkov wins uh, that fight over Steven Struve and then uh, calls out whoever the UFC wants next. Mm -hmm. So it's not like everybody's got the message. Next question
1: this week comes to us from Andrew Millington. He writes, could you dudes please discuss the career of Ben Askren? I personally admired him for some reasons, like being the Damian Maya of wrestling and MMA, and scoffed at him for others, like his inane conspiracy theories and Trump support. He also seems a bit like the original Tanya Evinger to me. He didn't mind being the big fish in a small pond so long as he kept his dignity. Uh, what are your opinions of his martial times? So, yeah, uh, it seems like uh, Ben Askren's got one more fight left in him, Ben. Uh, he's going to fight Shinya Aoki, I believe, in November. Is that what we're planning here? It's a bad idea for Shinya Aoki. doesn't seem like one that Shinya Aoki is going to win, uh, possibly by design, since this is Ben Askren's last fight.
0: Just size-wise, it seems like a bad idea for Shinya Aoki, but okay. Um... Do you believe that this is going to be Ben Askren's last fight first of all?
1: Well, you know with Ben I like Ben Askren is not your typical fighter dude, right? True. Like he's he's kind of done this uh to the beat of his own drum for his entire MMA career. He's a little young to be walking away at 33 years old. Uh so um I think we've all learned to take every single kind of MMA retirement with a grain of salt at this point. But if you told me that that uh this was Ben Askren's last go round, uh, he's going to go out there. This this is going to be for his title, right? One FC feather or uh, welterweight title? Sure. Why not? Whatever. He's going to go out there and defend that title for a final time and then ride off into the sunset. I wouldn't have that hard a time believing it about this particular individual who would then walk away at 18-0 and 0, uh, with his claim to being the best 170-pound fighter in the world still intact, uh, but maybe not with a lot of very attractive future options. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I as far as like how we'll look back on his martial times, to me it will always seem like just such a damn shame that we didn't get a chance to see him in the UFC if it really ends this way and if if he never fights again. Because clearly, talent wise, he deserves to fight in the UFC. You've seen some of the guys who have fought in the UFC, and there's a long list of dudes who are not as good as Ben Askren. Um, I can see how some people want to blame him for being or at least appearing Uh, perfectly content to hang out over there in 1FC and beat up guys who are nowhere near his skill level. I also think that people kind of forget what happened after after he left Bellator, that he wanted to go to the UFC, and the UFC suddenly showed no interest, decided Ben Askren needed to go get some experience somewhere else, like maybe World Series of Fighting, which I don't blame him for saying, like, yeah, I'm not going to let you kind of micromanage and, and dictate terms of my career without signing me. So he went over there and, and did his own thing. It's not like I really blame him, but it does seem like, man, that, that says something not so great about this sport. When talent wise, you can be there and belong there and you still just don't get a chance to do it just because of, from appearances like, you know, petty personal politics, basically.
1: Yeah, uh, and Ben Askren, I think if he does wrap it up here with an assumed victory over Shinya Aoki, it's not like he's going to be a guy who is on the tip of your tongue when the greatest of all time welterweight conversation comes up, despite nine wins in in Bellator, including uh, Andre Korshkov, uh, uh, Douglas Lima, Jay Hiron, Nick Thompson, Lyman Good. Beat a lot of guys that uh, beat a lot of known names, I guess you would say, in the sport. But at the same time, I feel like Ben Askren, if this is indeed the end for him, is is kind of uh, resigned to be one of those guys where you get five minutes deep in the conversation and then someone brings up Ben Askren and everybody's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's pretty good. He's pretty good. Sure. Why not? Throw him on the list. I don't know. It just seems like uh, as much as maybe we hate to admit it, like not showing up in the UFC does kind of doom him to a to a certain kind of history, I guess. Like, limits his potential, I suppose you could say.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Next question this week comes to us from Santi Cazorola.
0: Oh, yeah, That sounds like a... I believe uh, Santi Cazorola, however you say it, plays for Arsenal.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. So he found some time.
0: I assume uh, his teammates on Arsenal hipped him to the the comment event podcast since there are a whole lot of fans in the english premier league that's
1: right santi between kickarounds check out this podcast he writes given the long-term problems with depth in the light heavyweight division in the ufc the dearth of active talent in the heavyweight division appears to have gone slightly under the radar with no standout contender for stipe stipe to fight next who do you think will be the next man to step in the opt- octagon up against the baddest man on the planet? For me, DC appears to be the best competitor. Maybe Verdum if he flattens UFC social media star superhero The Black Beast. Otherwise, uh, you're getting set up. You're setting up for the ream to fight for the title, which is a reasonably depressing state of affairs. Please, PLZ, discuss with uh, three Zs all, all the way around there.
0: Thanks for listening Please off the discuss. Zs. Please Yeah. Uh I hope we're not setting up for the ream to have another shot at the title, are we?
1: Well, and this is uh this question is is borderline UFC 215 related, right? Cuz we were supposed to get uh Junior Dos Santos against Francis Ngannou on this card, and obviously uh Dos Santos got pulled out uh after being notified that he was uh, had a potential doping violation after a USADA drug test. Um, he was flagged during an out of competition test in early April and tested positive for uh, a substance I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Hydrochlor. No, I am actually going to try to pronounce it, I guess. <laughs> Hydrochlorothiazide.
0: Your first instinct to not try to pronounce it was correct.
1: Hydrochlorothiazide. Should have gone with that one. I got it, though. Second time around, I nailed it.
0: I'm, okay. Uh, I think, at least if we're looking at the immediate question of who should steep A fight, I feel like you you need some fresh blood in there because it's been a lot of the the older guys, the guys who have been around for a long time. I mean, he's fought uh Junior Dos Santos already, you know, twice like in the last 3 years. Um and you know, I kind of get it, but at the same time, you know, you got Junior Dos Santos, Alistair Overeem, Fabricio Verdum as his last three fights. Those are all the kind of the the aging old guard of the heavyweight division, the the guys who are all you know, around for a long time and seemed like maybe on the back end of their career. I'm interested in seeing some of these, the the fresher, newer faces, because there's not a lot of them, but the few that we have, like now we're starting to see a couple pop up of heavyweights, like under 30 or around 30. And there's some reason to be excited there. I understand like maybe the feeling that you don't want to rush guys like Francis Ngannou into a fight like that before they're ready. Uh But how long can you really put that off?
1: I feel like it should be Francis Ngannou and I feel like it sets up in a classically UFC kind of way for Francis Ngannou, like a, a classic UFC storyline for him to be set for this fight against Junior Dos Santos and then kind of have the rug pulled out from under him. And because of it gets sort of fast forwarded by necessity, because we need a heavyweight title matchup into a fight with Steve Miocic. And then of course, if you're going to go full UFC uh, fairy tale, he would end up winning and become the UFC heavyweight champion, you know, a fight or two before everyone would have thought he might have peaked and 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 been at that level. Um, and I think that would be an interesting matchup. I feel like Francis Ngannou is a guy who has some hype behind him, but at the same time, you know, despite four or five UFC wins in a row, which in the heavyweight division is like getting 15 at any other uh, weight class. He's got that first round TK over Andre Arlovsky and then Anthony Hamilton. Uh, those are probably his best known fights so far in the UFC despite those two victories feels like there's a lot of unknowns about him but he's this 31 year old guy where there's a lot of hype behind him I feel like uh we could wait a little while to put him in a title fight but I would also be pretty happy if they just kind of stuck him in there right now
0: well yeah and you know the talk recently is that he might fight Alistair Overeem uh instead in a couple months but then you're in the situation where what do you do if Alistair Overeem wins? Like, does anybody really want to turn right around and see another Steve A versus Alistair Overeem fight? It just, I don't, it feels like with who you have in the heavyweight division, you ought to be able to generate a little more excitement. And I think that you're going to need to branch out a little bit in order to do that. Meanwhile, Steve A's over here trying to fight boxers because he sees the, the paychecks and the writing on the wall there. And you, you can't really blame him. He's not happy with his financial situation with the UFC. So it seems like, you need to find a big fight that's really going to interest people for him in order for all sides to kind of come out happy there. I just don't think another rematch or fight with one of the, the older guys in the division is going to do it.
1: I guess we should note that uh in July, late July, there was this report from MMAOddsBreaker.com that the UFC was targeting Stipe Miocic against Cain Velasquez for UFC 216 on October 7th, Uh which in a way feels like out of a, out of left field to me just to kind of have Kane Velasquez return again after uh not hearing about him for a little while and, and sort of uh shoehorn him into another heavyweight title fight but i uh, i guess it's another matchup that i that i wouldn't sneeze at really
0: i mean the first thing i think when i hear that is that sounds like a really interesting matchup that Kane Velasquez won't show up for because he will be too hurt
1: wow bleak very bleak come man. on man well, what about uh Daniel Cormier as our boy Santo Santi Caz- Cazola, Casaz Caz- 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 Caz-
0: man, there's a lot, of, a lot of Arsenal fans right now, just really mad at you. Good, good, <laughs> Gunners. <laughs> um, you you mean likely to once again be UFC light heavyweight champion Daniel Cormier? Well, it just I, I once suppose by his rule a new contest.
1: I suppose if you bring up Daniel Cormier as a potential heavyweight title contender, you just opened a can of worms,
0: right? <laughs> especially because he has not even signaled any interest in competing in that division yet. So I don't, plus what well, you take him away from light heavyweight now, if John Jones is going to wind up suspended for a few years, man, now it's really into shut it down territory. What the hell's left then? Next question this week comes to us from troops.
1: Blued farm. Sounds like it might be a code for something else. I don't
0: know. <laughs> you rearrange the letters and you get just like, that's right. Blake Smith or something. Uh,
1: he writes can't I guess he or she writes can't wait to see my boy RDA in action against Neil Magney. Surely he'll be close to a title fight if he wins convincingly. So now we're we're edging into uh to UFC two fifteen talk here, Ben. You got Neil Magney and Rafael dos Anjos, Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, in a welterweight fight uh on the main card of UFC two fifteen. Um this is one of those fights where it's like you don't think about it much until until it happens, uh, but does seem like kind of a tasty matchup for hardcore fans out there.
0: Now I realize why this person had to go with a, a pseudonym here to ask this question, because who else is going to admit to sitting down and typing out a phrase, my boy RDA? That's, He's not anybody's boy.
1: doesn't want to get called out around the water cooler That's right. over there at work.
0: That's right. Um, I assume he works at Arsenal. That's why everybody at the water cooler would be talking about the CME. Um, yeah, I mean, this was when... Before Francis Ngannou and Junior Dos Santos got knocked off this card, this was one of the fights that you could kind of throw in in your discussion of how the undercard for UFC 215 kind of made up for the lack of any one big star. You know, you had two title fights and then a solid undercard, which made it all around, like, in in the aggregate, a solid pay-per-view. Um, and now... It seems like you lose that fun heavyweight fight, and I guess you got to pin a lot more hopes on this one, which, you know, I'm willing to do. You think about how the styles match up. It seems like that could be an interesting fight. I love watching me some Neil Magny, uh, and uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, though, seems to be at kind of a critical point.
1: He does. Well he had two back to back losses at uh lightweight, Eddie Alvarez and Tony Ferguson. Then he moved up to welterweight, beat Turek Safadine. Uh so this will be his second fight at 170 pounds inside the octagon. I started to it's wonder It's a tough fight too. It is a very tough fight. I started to wonder about this uh suggestion that he will be close to a title fight if he wins convincingly, because on its face that seems ridiculous, right? That that uh Dos Anjos is gonna immediately become number one contender at 170 pounds. Then you'll look at the contender list, and your, your top three guys, Stephen Thompson, Robbie Lawler, and Damian Maya, have all already lost to your champion, Tyron Woodley. And then you get into uh, Carlos Condit, Donald Cerrone, Neil Magny, Colby Covington territory. And then you got Santiago Ponzinibbio and Javier Dos Anjos at 9 and 10, respectively. So if, if Dos Anjos did win this fight, he could conceivably be up there top five-ish, in in a top five at 170 pounds where uh, outside of uh, Jorge Masvidal, uh, you got a lot of guys who who have recently dropped title fights?
0: Yeah, I I'm, guess And so. I'm not
1: saying that Dos Anjos is a guy that like UFC matchmaker is going to be like, oh boy, we got to get this guy into a title fight again, right? But maybe it's not as crazy as I thought originally.
0: Yeah, except you're forgetting that uh, GSP is going to Lose to Michael Bisping, drop down to welterweight, and then fight Conor McGregor for an interim welterweight title while Tyrone Woodley somehow gets cut out of the entire picture altogether. Prediction. Boom.
1: I mean, as far as predictions go, that one, you're not too far out on a limb there as to what's going to happen. Should we do one more? We got time for one more. We got time for one more. Why not?
0: This one from Not Steve. (laughs) Okay. Well, now we know who it's not. I guess we're going to process of elimination this one
1: again. He or she writes. So I was looking at UFC 216 and I noticed Paige VanZant is fighting Jessica I at flyweight. A month later, we'll have ourselves a flyweight champion. Uh, and no other women's flyweight fights have been booked. Any chance that one, Paige VanZant versus Jessica I, is a number one contender fight if Paige VanZant wins? And two, that this whole thing was an elaborate ruse by the Human Tomato and his WME overlords to get Paige VanZant a belt. Think of how many pay-per-views. Uh, Women's flyweight champion Paige Van Zandt would sell. I know that I'm crazy, but is there any chance I'm right? Discuss.
0: I think not Steve is kind of crazy here. Uh, I think that Paige Van Zandt, as a flyweight, it's not like she physically was just tossing around 115ers and, and just, you know, brutalizing people with sheer size and strength. Right. I think she might have some problems in that weight class. To me, it seems like her going to, to fly weight feels like kind of the fighter's false friend in a way. She's looking for the the, the clean slate of changing weight class.
1: No, it's not like in those losses to Rose Namajunas and Michelle Watterson that we were like, well, Van Zandt just needs to move up. She's just, <laughs> this, this, uh, this straw weight thing is just killing her. Yeah. She needs to get up there to, to a higher weight class, take on some bigger competitors. Yes. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the, uh, the answer here, although... You know, maybe, if nothing else, you breathe a little bit more life into the career of Paige Van Zandt if she's like, hey, I'm going to go up to flyweight and and try my luck there. Because then at least maybe you have a fresh
0: start. See, that's what I'm saying. But I don't know if that's really going to work that well for her. I think it might end up being, like, one of the many times Diego Sanchez has tried for a fresh start going up or down in weight and... If you don't actually go down there and win those fights, then that fresh start disappears really quickly. And Jessica I seems like kind of a, a bad opponent for her in that sense.
1: Do you think that that's the first time in recorded history that Paige Van Zandt and Diego Sanchez have been compared to one another?
0: You know, I'll have to look through the records, but something tells me no.
1: Yeah, run a search. Yeah. See if you can come up with
0: anything. I'll run a quick search of everything that's ever been said.
1: That's going to do it for this uh, episode of Listener Mail. If you have questions or comments or concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there... You can check out the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all these days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's funny. It's informative. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben Alexander Volkov and Stefan Struve go out there in the heavyweight main event of last Saturday's fight night 115 Volkov ends up winning third round TKO over Stefan Struve and I guess this conversation could go one of two ways because there are at this point perhaps divergent paths for Alexander Volkov and Stefan Struve so I'm gonna let you choose your own adventure oh good where I you want to go with this who you want to talk about Struve, Volkov. Let's start out talking
0: about Struve.
1: All right. I think that's a good choice because Stefan Struve is a guy that everybody likes. I say as an introduction to our conversation about him, which perhaps does not bode well no. for how the rest of the conversation is going to go. No. On one you hand... You don't want to be
0: on the CME podcast with Chad Dunnus talking about how people actually like you. Steph- I mean, something bad happened.
1: On one, on one hand, Stefan Struve, seven feet tall, 29 years old, heck of a striker would seem to have a lot of potential in the heavyweight division, comes into this fight against Alexander Volkov, having won three of his last four, for gosh sakes. Uh, and then he goes out and gets TKO'd again in the third round here by Volkov, which, as I said during the intro, uh, drops him to three and four in his last seven, and is his uh, third knockout loss, version of a knockout loss, in that span, which goes back to 2013. Uh, not to mention a host of other uh, physical ailments for Stefan Struve so far in his career.
0: First of all, I want to point out how, depending on how you want to say it, how things can sound really different for you. Won three of his last four. Yeah. But now three and f- uh four in his last seven.
1: Yeah, that's numbers. Yeah. Make the numbers sound whatever you want. Say whatever you want. Uh, how worried are we about Stefan Struve?
0: You mean like health-wise? All, all around, all the way around. You know, I thought he looked really good in this fight early on. He
1: doesn't look done by any stretch of the imagination, I would say.
0: No. It, You know, like the first round, I thought, you know, man, it seems like Stefan Struve has, has found kind of a, I don't know, I don't know, say a, a new speed, but he, he looked a lot sharper. He was catching Alexander Volkov, some really sharp strikes that somewhere, like maybe it seemed like Stefan Struve was a little disappointed that it didn't seem to bother. Uh, Volkov more than it did because you saw him he ate some of those really just precision hard punches early on in that fight and didn't even look bothered and it seemed like maybe as he kept coming and kept upping the pressure it like maybe it just sort of wore Stefan Struve down mentally as much as physically because it seemed like by the end he just he kind of wanted to be done Um and maybe that's and you know you get hit in the head enough times, and it's not necessarily a conscious decision you're making anymore. But it seemed like it was. It became a battle of wills at some point, and Stefan Struve lost that part of it, which always makes me wonder about how badly you want to be in there and you want to keep doing this. because It's a brutal business, and he started pretty young. He started
1: real young, debuted in the UFC back in 2009. Uh, this has kind of blew my mind when I figured it out. 19 UFC fights for Stefan Struve, which is a lot uh and thirty seven fights overall here after this loss to Alexander Volkov. And that is a lot of fights to have considering that he only fought once in two thousand thirteen. Basically uh you know, beat Stepe Miocic, which is a funny thing to say at this point, uh in September two thousand twelve, and then only fight fought once until uh his loss to Alex Overeem uh in December of two thousand fourteen. So a lengthy absence for Stefan Struve owing to uh to those physical ailments that we talked about heart condition and uh, struggled a little bit with panic attacks uh, and stuff like that. So uh, he's had kind of a rocky road here. And, and is, is a, you know, is a guy who at seven feet tall, it felt like we were all kind of waiting for him throughout his career to really maximize those physical attributes that he had. Uh, and now you get to the point where he's almost 30. And, and like you said, he looked good earlier in the, in his fight, maybe athletically some things are starting to come together for him. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of wear and tear on the big man at this point. So uh, you really don't know where, where the path leads at this point for Stefan Struve.
0: Well, yeah. And one of the things that I noted in my post fight column after this one was with Alexander Volkov's victory, you know, he now is won all his UFC fights on a kind of an escalating uh, series of challenges. And, you know, he's one of the few heavyweights to be, you know, in the top 10, under 30. I think he's one of two in the UFC zone, like uh, their internal rankings. Uh, I think he's one of two guys under 30 in the UFC heavyweight top 10. The other guy, Stefan Struve. Um, so it, it seems like on one hand, Stefan Struve is exactly the kind of guy that we're saying the UFC's heavyweight division does not have enough of. But then when you kind of look at the the miles and not just the years, I don't know if that, that really holds up.
1: Yeah, and then you got Alexander Volkov, like you said, lost back-to-back fights at the end of his Bellator career in 2015. Uh Kind of washed the stink off of himself with a couple of wins over an M1 and then comes over to win three straight fights in the UFC. And now, like you said, at 28 years old, he perhaps seems like a young up-and-coming prospect in this uh rapidly aging UFC heavyweight division. Uh, and he himself is six foot seven, which always makes it seem like kind of a lazy promotional job when, when one of the things that we say is, well, these guys are both really tall. Tune in to see what happens when two really tall guys fight.
0: Tall man fight times. Who, who doesn't like that?
1: So what is the, uh, what's the top of the hill here for Alexander Volkov? Well, you That's know, his best case scenario.
0: I mean, clearly he's tough as all hell you could see that in the fight against not only because of some of the shots he took but also he gets poked in both goddamn eyes Chad gets <laughs> poked in both eyes gets split open by that knee uh, and never really seems bothered by any of it I mean he had some some prime Dendasso thrown at him in this fight still just just kept right on coming so you know toughness wise he's got that there uh I just I guess I wonder once you get up against some of the the faster, more athletic heavyweights in that division, how does the, the six foot seven inch Volkov hold up?
1: Yeah, well, we're probably going to find out, I would assume, because this victory moves him, uh, I would say, to the top of the pack of the mid-range of the heavyweight division. Yeah. Is that descriptive sure, enough for that's you? that's accurate. Yeah, where where you got to think he would be sort of verging on fights against guys like Derek Lewis or uh, maybe a Mark Hunt type situation uh you know we're right there on the fringe of being a contender with guys like Overeem, Verdum, Cain Velasquez, Francis Ngannou. Uh so as we've talked about time and time again on this show, not the deepest of divisions as if you're Alexander Volkov, you get this win over Stefan Struve, uh you're going to fight a a name after this, I would think.
0: I wonder what a win like this actually really does for you. I mean, obviously the UFC is going to be like, okay, you won the main event here. You you're moving up the ranks. You get a tougher opponent next. But You know, Danny Downs and I talked a little bit about this this week. We just came off this huge Mayweather-McGregor, you know, endless circus. Finally, we can get back to normal. We get back to a little MMA, and what we get is this fight pass card in the middle of a Saturday afternoon.
1: Businesslike. Yes. Workmanlike. Very
0: businesslike. You know, I'm sure a lot of people just opted to skip this one and probably don't feel like they really missed a whole bunch If you say Alexander Volkov, do you think it means more to people now than it did on Friday? Or do they just hear, Russian name, Russian name. I'm not sure. I thought maybe you were talking about Volko and Ozdemir. And now I'm disappointed to hear that you're not.
1: Is that the Bellator guy? Yeah. I think is what a lot of people say.
0: (laughs) Well, no. It's just like Danny Downs said. He was like, I could probably tell you that that he is the current Bellator heavyweight champion. And you'd you'd have to look it up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you go one of two ways with Alexander Volkov from here, right? You give him a guy like Derek Lewis, you give him a guy like Mark Hunt, uh, he, you know, a known name, I guess. You could give him Andre Arlovsky, somebody like that. Uh, or then, or you could just, like, give him uh, any one of these seemingly interchangeable names, like Marcin Tabira, Alexei Olenek, Junior Albini. Like, these are guys who are on their way up, but at the same time, I'm not sure that any of them have done a ton to distinguish themselves. And for Alexander Volkov now, he comes off wins over Roy Nelson and Stefan Struve in two of his first three UFC fights. So it would seem like, at least to me, a step back for him to fight someone uh, who seemed more like an interchangeable piece rather than someone that we know. And as we have said again, time and time again, this heavyweight division needs all the help it can get. So I don't know that you want to slow a guy's momentum.
0: I, I like that Mark Hunt idea an awful lot, especially one of the problems with seeing two tall guys fight. Is that I kind of lose perspective on it? You know, they they just seem like normal sized guys standing next to each other. You put six foot seven inch Volkov in there against you know what like five eleven Mark Hunt. Now we have a visual story to tell.
1: So now you're talking about uh, tall man versus hefty man, yes. stocky man,
0: that's husky a, man, which I think you'll agree is a classic UFC heavyweight division matchup. <laughs> yeah, we're going. It's from, like striker from, versus grappler. We're,
1: we're going from one thing to the other. Yes. Well, he beat a tall man. Let's see if he can beat a husky man <laughs> coming up
0: next. I don't know if it feels too great about his chances to beat that particular husky man, to be honest. You want to
1: do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll get out of here. We'll get on to round number two. Sure. Well, Ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? goes out to Pauly This dude's still talking, man. <laughs> like the rest, of the, the rest of the world, the rest of the combat sports world, we've kind of moved on to the next thing. We yeah. did Mayweather McGregor, a lot of laughs. We had a lot of laughs, a lot of fun with Mayweather McGregor. But we're on to the next, man. UFC 215 next weekend. Polly Malignaggi is like the last guy to leave the club. Still hanging out in there. Still trying to get girls to dance with him.
0: <laughs> well, you so, sounds so sad when you put it you like that. you fucking
1: kidding me? Are you kidding me? Come on, <laughs> We're moving on here. <laughs> we we gotta, all got
0: stuff to do. We got to move we on. We got jobs. We have, we have lives here. Chad... My, are you fucking kidding me this week? Um, you know what I like about Darren Till? I like a guy who comes out there and when he's speaking English, he's speaking in that really thick Liverpool accent. Um, and then we'll just surprise the hell out of you by switching right into like fluent Portuguese, uh, which you don't see coming. You don't see that one coming, but he did that in his post fight interview, uh, this weekend after, you know, his victory and the, you know, he just glances into some Portuguese, and afterwards uh he's asked to translate that for us, and does so by just saying, uh, it was just about Brazilian politics and how the president should go to jail. Huh. I feel like you got to say a little bit more if you say that. Really? I feel like I'm good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you give me the explanation. I'm like, all right, man. Are you on with your bad self, Darren Till.
0: Are you fucking kidding me? You just summarized how you think the president should go to jail? That's that's kind of awesome you fucking, kidding, You're fucking me? kidding me
1: man of the world yeah Darren Till anyway that's gonna do it for round number one we'll be right back with round number two
0: You got some history on the line at UFC 215 that Saturday night. Not that you would know it by just the general sense around this event so far. Because here we are, we're heading into a fight where UFC flyweight champion Demetrius Johnson could break Anderson Silva's record for most uh, consecutive title defenses uh, with a win over Ray Borg, who, according to oddsmakers, he is definitely expected to beat. I think right now, uh, Mighty Mouse going off at... 12-to-1 or 11-to-1 favorite, depending on your source. So probably going to win that fight, um, according to all indications. And if he does so, it will be a record-breaking historical moment for the UFC. So why does this fight card feel like even Dana White wouldn't watch it if he didn't have to?
1: It's weird because, number one, it makes you feel like just being – it makes you feel all over again, I guess you could say. Like just being historically great is not good enough for Demetrius Johnson somehow – uh, and it's also weird because if you look at the totality of Demetrius Johnson's career as UFC flyweight champion, uh where we all agree he's been, like I said, historically good. uh, But at the same time, he's been also almost entirely drama free until right here at this part of it. You know he's been an absolute workhorse as far as like a champion schedule is concerned. Uh, he's been leaps and bounds better than everyone else. He's the damn only men's flyweight champion the octagon has ever known. Uh, and it kind of seems like somehow in that process he has almost worn out his welcome with the UFC. Uh, when you or, say drama, or vice free, versa,
0: the the drama in this case is even really only in response to the UFC kind of instigating the drama. You know, Dana White goes on like a, a UFC podcast to say, oh, I can't believe Demetrius Johnson turned down TJ Dillashaw. Here was a fight to, you know, that was going to be huge for him and make some points in the pay-per-view and he wouldn't do it. I can't believe this guy. And then the drama is only when he has to step up and kind of defend himself and say, here's what happened. Uh So yeah, it's not like, like he has been from all indications, pretty damn easy to work with for the UFC Uh, and the UFC has loved at times to tell people how great he is, and yet it seems like, okay, now maybe we've reached a point when, you know, the UFC has even talked about pulling the plug on the whole division, uh, and maybe just being great is not enough for anybody anymore. But it still seems like if we're going to go ahead and we're going to do this fight at all, and we're going to headline a pay-per-view with it, we might as well put our back into it, huh? I mean, why not?
1: Put a little elbow
0: grease behind it. Yeah, especially if it's going to be like a historic moment. Like it, it could actually be history in the UFC, and it seems like the UFC itself is just kind of indifferent about that.
1: Yeah, well, and uh, Demetrius Johnson, in theory, goes out there and breaks. This is he's going to break it, right? Anderson Silva's yes. consecutive uh, title defense streak. Uh, that is one of those records that that obviously it speaks to the guys. Longevity and consistency and greatness because, uh, it's almost like a Joe DiMaggio style hit streak record. Like it's, uh, it's really hard to have that many successful title defenses in a row. But at the same time, it's one of those, uh, records that kind of sneaks up on you, I guess you could say, in some ways. It's not like the home run record. It's not like a thing that if somebody is about to break it, you know, you know it. It's not the kind of thing that makes a lot of headlines. And then that way, Perhaps it's the, it's the perfect record for Demetrius Johnson to break because it's super hard. Maybe it was a thing we thought might never happen. Demetrius Johnson, uh, for all expectations will do it somewhat effortlessly. And at the end of the day, everyone is just kind of going to be like, okay, cool.
0: Yeah. Well, in the nature of this record, like you said, kind of is that you, probably have to have cleaned out your division to even get closer to this record. And so at that point, yeah, we will be just kind of expecting you to win. One of the things that was interesting about the both sides giving their version about how the UFC and Demetrius Johnson kind of had a falling out about who would be his opponent for this fight uh, was in looking around for an opponent. And Demetrius Johnson said at first that he thought Sergio Pettis was a bigger name uh, than Ray Borg. The UFC wanted Ray Borg, then changed their minds. Um, and Ben wanted this kind of like, you know, somebody to come down from bantamweight and Demetrius Johnson, at least according to his version was fine with that as long as they could be assured of making the weight because he didn't want to miss the chance. He didn't want this to become a non-title fight and for him to miss the chance to break this record. Like clearly breaking the record is very important to him. It seems like that's when he- been his answer. If people even ask him about going up a division or something is he wants to break this record uh, at flyweight first. Is the record, do you think, way more important to him than it is to anybody else, to the UFC, to fans, to to, to media, to anybody?
1: I mean, it's a heck of an achievement. So I think that we all kind of recognize the um, how difficult it is to get to that point, to, to even have a chance to break that record. But at the end of the day, probably yes. And if you're Demetrius Johnson... I think it's understandable that that record would mean a lot more to you than anyone else just because he's the guy in the training room all the time, right? And and you can tell just by the way that Demetrius Johnson fights and the sort of evolution of his style from merely outstanding to unbelievably historically good. Absolutely flawless. Right. Yeah, you can tell uh, this is a dude who works his ass off and he has kind of been so far ahead of all of his competition that I'm sure he needs a motivating factor. I'm sure he has a lot of motivating factors. Uh, But at the same time, that record that Anderson Silva record is something that is easy for me to believe that an athlete might grab onto mentally and be like, yeah, that's, I'm going to break that record. And that might give him, you know, a little bit extra spring in his step on days w- when, uh, he needs it, and so yeah, I'd rather
0: just stay stay in and play video games. Yeah, it doesn't feel
1: like like uh, lo- looking at Matt Hume's underarm all day or <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? Uh, but so yeah, I could see that being a thing that's super important to him. That is that to the rest of the world seems like an achievement, but is not necessarily a, a you know we're not going to break up the war type for it.
0: Uh, okay, say he does break this record. Seems likely he will. I would put money on it that he will. Um, then what? Then do you think that even the people who have been super supportive of Demetrius Johnson and have been the, the MMA nerds telling everybody else that they need to pay attention to and appreciate what Demetrius Johnson is and what he can do, do you think even they will start to be like, okay, now you need to go up a division or now you need to at least fight somebody from a higher division, whether it's in your weight class or theirs, you need to do something different because now you broke the record and there's no point in just hanging out and beating up these guys who are clearly way ahead of
1: Yeah, and I mean, on one end, I want to say I feel like it's a little bit ironic that it seems like Demetrius Johnson has gotten himself in this hot water with the UFC for perhaps trying to play the game that the company wants everybody to play right now. Like maybe Demetrius Johnson had entirely selfish reasons for wanting to fight Sergio Pettis, but that also is legitimately relatively speaking, the biggest matchup just at flyweight, right? Like Sergio Pettis versus Demetrius Johnson would do marginally better headlining a pay-per-view, we think, than Demetrius Johnson versus Ray Borg. Yeah, but I
0: mean, what does it mean? You push you from like 215,000 buys to 235,000 buys?
1: Right. I'm just saying it seems like Demetrius Johnson was trying to make a marketable fight for himself by calling out Sergio Pettis. Uh, And I think in fairness, we have to point out additionally that he has said all along that the thing he wants to do Is break this flyweight record and then fight somebody like Cody Garbrandt or T.J. Dillashaw at bantamweight. So, despite the fact that you've got, it's not like the flyweight division is dead because you do have guys like Sergio Pettis, uh, Juicy Formiga is still out there, uh, you know Ben Wynn, up and coming guys that that uh, that Demetrius Johnson could fight. But I do think people would be hyped to see him go back up to bantamweight and try to fight dillashaw garbrandt heck even a rematch with cruz i think would be would be fascinating so after this fight i do think that 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 is the right move here's the question that i have for you though ben do you think the ufc would still want him to do that or are we in a spite type situation where now they'll be like well yeah now we're not going to give you that bantamweight fight or whatever
0: See, that is the question that you you always have to ask yourself with the ufc is how willing is it to um act against its own interests basically in order to punish somebody else because that's what we've seen in the past uh more willing than you'd think uh, especially when it comes to like fights like this like we can hear Dana White beforehand talking about okay fine uh Demetrius Johnson will get Ray Borg and I'm sure all the fans will be dying to pay for that one and you're like wait a minute this is your product you're supposed to be the salesman you're supposed to be selling this fight to us right now and basically out of spite against the guy because he wouldn't do exactly what you wanted. You're hurting your own product here. You're, you're, you know, taking money out of your own pocket by undercutting it. Uh, and so you do wonder how long that could possibly go on. I mean, unless you're going to pull the plug on the division and just say, you know what, we tried this men's flyweight experiment and we're done with it now. Like, as long as you're going to still have the guy around, you might as well work with him, especially since he's one of the greatest talents in the sport of mixed martial arts. What will it say about it if the guy can be one of the most brilliant fighters that we've ever seen in MMA, and the UFC will just kind of not work with him or not really push him um, just because it's mad at him.
1: What is the best thing that Demetrius Johnson could do?
0: Right like, now? You mean after he beats Ray Borg? Yeah.
1: Like kind of as a career arc, what is the best thing that he could do?
0: He could get up there. Let's say he goes up there, beats Ray Borg, looks absolutely perfect doing it. Um, then gets on the mic and tells Cody Garbrandt that he absolutely sucks. That's I mean to really go at like and to maybe the way to do it is to just be like, you know what? I'm not they wanted me to fight TJ Dillashaw and I thought that was bullshit because he's not even the champ. I want the absolute best on the bantamweight division. Give me the champ, give me Cody Garbrandt to really be like aggressive about to end up say like, all right, I did what I came to do here at flyweight. I broke the record. Um now I'm going to go up and and take out the champion in that division too i mean to get really kind of like aggressive about a piece of history that i think maybe fans would care about more than they do about just this individual record that he's after
1: i totally agree with you and i would take it one step further if i was uh demetrius johnson i would say i'm going on a champion's ass whooping tour okay i'm coming for cody garbrandt and then once i got that belt max holloway you're next (laughs) whoa and then once i got that belt conor mcgregor you're next because that's fucking crazy, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's the but problem the with that is that people time, wouldn't take it seriously. But
1: it's Demetrius Johnson. What if he did go beat Cordy Garbrandt? Then you're telling me you wouldn't want to see that? The you pro- wouldn't want to see him do a BJ Penn style vision quest where he's out here trying to beat these
0: giants? Man, you know I would really want to see that. The problem with Demetrius Johnson, though, is that he's already kind of tried that uh, before the UFC had a flyweight division and he, he got beat by Dominic Cruz. And so True. it was like he is one of the few champions that. We kind of feel like we know how he would fare up a weight class. Uh, so He's
1: better now, though. Yeah, he's and better. that was a
0: long time ago. And I'm sure a lot of the people who are fans now didn't even know what the hell MMA was back when that fight happened.
1: Yeah. if you're, I'm just saying if you're Demetrius Johnson, you got to – well, maybe you don't got to because he doesn't seem like this kind of dude. It seems like, frankly, he's happy just doing what he's doing. Yeah, going to go and, home
0: and just you know power wash the deck after this and <laughs> don't care.
1: And more power to him, frankly. <laughs> I support Demi- Demetrius Johnson and what he wants to do. I'm just saying, I think it would be awesome if he suddenly flipped the script and he was like, you want me to get crazy? Let's get crazy. Yeah. Here's what I'm going to do. There you go. For you got to beat Ray Borg first, so I guess. Yeah. So we'll see that yeah, on Saturday Got to do night.
0: that. Got to climb that mountain.
1: Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, do you think that we could just copy and paste our discussion about Amanda Nunez versus Valentina Shevchenko from the episode of the co-main event podcast that came out before UFC 213?
0: No. It's a different landscape now. It's just a different world? That's right. Because you have to take into account what happened the last time they tried to fight. Especially, we were just talking about how willing the UFC might be to just spite a even one of its champions. It seems like that might be relevant here.
1: Speaking of champions that may or may not be in the doghouse, right?
0: That's right. You got a, a literal
1: doghouse Stano keeps in his office with little UFC fig- figurines in it. <laughs> if you found out he had that, you wouldn't be surprised, no, would you? Not
0: at all. <laughs> just like the, like in the old Clash of the Titans where the gods just play with a little, the figurines of, of human beings. Yeah.
1: It's on a desk right under the, uh, The the tombstone that has Affliction and Elite XE and strike force stickers on it. Turned out to be an
0: actual legal liability. The doghouse
1: is under that. Yeah,
0: Yeah, well, okay. So now we got this fight where I'll be interested to see what the interest level is in this fight. Because when it got pulled, when the the Amanda uh, Nunez-Valentina Shevchenko fight got pulled from UFC 215, the reaction from a lot of people you would have thought this was the fight that they had built their whole year around. Right. So now you're going to get it. Now, are we all happy now, or are we all just mad at Amanda Nunez for pulling out?
1: Well, that's some classic mixed martial arts culture stuff, right? Like Amanda Nunez versus Valentina Shevchenko. It's a fight that I will watch. It's not a fight that I had circled in red on my calendar. Uh, and then when it gets pulled off the UFC 213 lineup, everybody acts like uh, like someone burned the manuscript of the next George R.R. R. Martin novel yes. in front of them,
0: right? <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I guess what we're looking at here, we, I mean, for one thing, we've already seen this fight. But then if Amanda Nunez wins this, then she becomes like basically the new dominant uh, women's champion. Like this was the belt that nobody could hold after Ronda Rousey gave it up. And now, you know, she will have proven that she can hold it, but does she then just go into like a kind of mighty mouse, like territory only without the long history of, uh, complete annihilation of opponents. Like, cause it seems like the UFC is only so interested in her and got less interested after she pulled out of that fight. Uh, And right now, it kind of seems like it looks at what's going on in the UFC women's bantamweight division and just thinks like, all right, we're in a lull between stars, I guess.
1: Yeah, if somebody asked me for a microcosm of the challenges that the UFC currently faces, I might be tempted to say women's 135-pound division. Just look at what's going on there because you had the superstar in Ronda Rousey. Uh, who held down the belt for a couple of years and was the greatest thing since sliced bread and then gets knocked out by Holly Holm and kind of, uh, moves quickly into the past, I would say. Uh, you know, she gives way to Amanda Nunez, who is an incredible fighter at that weight, super dominant to this point. Uh, is a someone who is seemingly marketable, but at the same time is a, a champion that has not necessarily, uh, grabbed hold of the zeitgeist a champion that has not necessarily proven her worth as a big time pay-per-view draw. And at this point, now that the figurine is in the doghouse in Dana White's office, uh, there are some questions about, about her future, I guess you could say as a pay-per-view draw. So you got a competitive and interesting fight against Valentina Shevchenko, but it's just sort of a fight that doesn't set the world on fire in terms of marketability and drawing power, which is, the UFC writ small, I guess you could say. Like that's the thing that is happening everywhere. Tons of amazing fighters, people who are out here changing the game. Young kids that are fighting like they they grew up in a damn video game, and yet uh, none of them you know, people aren't buying the fat head and sticking it on the wall at home. <laughs> oh, no. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like no one's buying the uh, the Amanda Nunez fat head yet. So it's uh this is this fight is a is a good example i think of of the struggles that the u f c currently faces and and with a couple of even added layers to it, considering that it's a rematch and it's a fight that was scheduled once before that got pulled off the table at the last possible minute.
0: do you think it's just a failure of imagination in marketing on the u f c s part because on paper it would seem like there's a lot you could do with amanda nunez the u f c s first openly gay champion uh you know Someone who came from Brazil to live the American dream and now it's all going uh, incredibly well for her. It seems like it's a feel-good story in a whole lot of ways if you're willing to tell it. And maybe even you can tell it to a different audience than the one you're used to where you can t- say something other than just like, best on the planet.
1: It's weird. Uh, I'm not going to lay all of it at the feet of the UFC because I th- I think that it's, it's simply – more difficult than everyone imagines to make stars out of professional fighters for whatever reason. I think you see the same thing in professional wrestling where it's like they got all the talent in the world, but you just can't, uh, crank out the rock time and time again. Uh, you know, I think the, you see the UFC facing that now where it's, it's sort of like you never know exactly what the public is going to gravitate toward. You know, you, you, you get a Conor McGregor the plumber who was on the dole and suddenly he comes out of nowhere um spitting fire in every interview and predicting the future and just being this very strange personality who catches hold somehow with with the with the public and the public frankly wants to see connor mcgregor against floyd mayweather apparently right uh the public may not grab onto amanda nuñez in in quite the same numbers although I think it would be awesome if following UFC 215, we started a rumor that it did 6.5 million (laughs) pay-per-view buys. Uh, So it's weird. Like, do I think the UFC could do a more diverse job uh, promoting its fighters? Yes. I feel like uh, there's a whole, uh, you know, niche of platforms that you could probably try to put Amanda Nunez on just to see what would happen. Are they doing that? Maybe a little bit, maybe not enough. I don't know. Uh, But at the same time, I feel like not everyone can be Conor McGregor. Not everyone can be Ronda Rousey. And so we are just in this holding period until we figure out, uh, what the next big thing is.
0: Who do you think wins this fight? How do you think it goes?
1: I feel like you gotta say Amanda Nunez, right? Just for, uh, just for consistency's sake, just because, uh, she's the champ just because, uh, she won the first time just because she's on this, this role where she's won five fights in a row. And like Demetrius Johnson, I feel like she's better now
0: yeah, than I she agree. was
1: when she fight, when she fought Valentina Shevchenko the first time. Uh, so I think it will be an interesting, like potentially, uh, crowd pleasing scrap, but uh, like I don't really expect Valentina Shevchenko to like become the new champion, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it'll be a close fight. I think if Valentina Shevchenko can get her into the later rounds, then one of the things we've seen from Amanda noon, I mean, I get, I agree that she's better now than she was, but one of the things we've seen from her in the past is that, uh, she will kind of gas late because she is such a high intensity and power everything fighter early on. Um, it's tough to keep that up for five rounds. So I don't know, that would be interesting to see as a challenge, but, um, yeah, I agree. If I have to pick, I guess I'm going with her. And then and then what happens?
1: It's tough to imagine. Does uh, she also
0: call out Cody Garbrandt?
1: She's going on a champion's ass-whooping tour. Yeah, she's okay. coming for you, j chick. since that's all we got right now.
0: <laughs> Champion to be named later she's coming, in the 125-pound she's, division. She's
1: coming up for you, Chris Cyborg. Well, now don't, that might be interesting. Don't do but that, But at though. the same time, we like Amanda Nunez. Yeah. I think she seems like a nice person. Yes. Uh you want to do just saying stuff, then we'll get out of here for this week, Ben? Sure. Ben, what is your just saying stuff?
0: Well, Chad, I saw this only via Twitter, but you know Ronda Rousey did some kind of pro wrestling spot.
1: This um, I weekend. know she got
0: married. That's She that's tied true. the knot
1: with Travis Brown.
0: That was that was like last weekend. Uh looked
1: like a uh a uh seaside ceremony. Sure. Perhaps over there in, in the big islands. I,
0: I believe so. Hawaii? Let's stay focused here, though. She was at some WWE Hold on. event. I
1: want to talk more about Ronda Rousey's nuptials Not Travis really. Brown.
0: Not really. Okay. Seemed very nice. Very would have tasteful. thought that would
1: have been bigger news.
0: Okay. At one point, it would have been bigger news. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, she showed up. You know, it seems like the Rousey machine has been gearing up for something. Uh, I think MMA fans maybe got a little bit excited, thinking maybe it meant a comeback. Instead, it seems like maybe a pivot to pro wrestling is in the works. And she showed up at some WWE thing, uh ostensibly to support Shayna Baszler, her longtime friend and teammate. uh But then had this clearly, you know, kind of scripted run in with some of the, the WWE's, uh wrestlers. And it was a kind of awkward. It was just kind of painful to watch, which I guess leads to my just saying stuff, which is... If you're going to go to pro wrestling because your acting career kind of fizzled out when people say it had, let's say, concerns about your acting ability, and then you're not even like a really good actor for pro wrestling, I'm just saying, at some point, you need to identify a recurring weak point here. And it shouldn't really be that hard, especially because if you go and you look at Ronda Rousey's uh, IMDB page... A recurring thing is that she keeps getting roles playing Ronda Rousey, which is essentially what she's trying to do, I guess, in pro wrestling. Shouldn't be that hard. Seems like, I'm just saying, maybe this is the time to get in one of those those acting classes, in one of those seminars, she advertised, uh, you know, at like bus stops in L.A. Like an improv group, maybe? Yeah, maybe an improv group. Monday night improv practice? Tear off the little tab of paper, you know, first lesson free. Just go down there, see what they got. You know? Yes, and ronda that's all i'm saying
1: just saying well ben i know this probably landed in your inbox this morning reebok and ufc unveil new ufc fight night collection in all caps yeah
0: so that just got the chills immediately
1: i guess this week i'm just saying we've reached a point where it's impossible to think that these things look good right like it doesn't kind of doesn't matter what they do like these ones they look fine to me the new fight night kits looks a little bit like somebody spilled bleach on them they got a little uh they got a little texture to them. Distressed, maybe? A little, yeah, distressed design going on. But I want to point out one sentence from this official press release that we received that I think has some potential. UFC Legacy Series. Uh Uh-oh. The Legacy Series marks the biggest update to the current UFC athlete apparel by allowing for any athlete competing in the main event of a UFC pay-per-view event or competing in a championship bout to co-design and wear a UFC walkout jersey that is customized to their specifications. Okay. Now this, this has got some legs, right? There are some people that I would like to see, frankly, co-design a custom jersey to wear during a walkout tanya evinger being one of them yes also i'm just saying what if your co-design is that you want to have the names of some companies (laughs) on there that are paying you some money to have their logos on your walkout Yeah. Co design legacy series. What if when
0: I go to co design my fight kit, I'm like, you know what is really important to me that I would love to see represented on this fight kit is Condom Depot.
1: Toyo Tires (laughs) is one of my main influences in life.
0: Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm a dynamic fighter and so I want people to know about Dynamic Fastener.
1: A lot of potential. That's all I'm saying.
0: Or the first time one of the crazy conspiracy theorists, Trump supporter fighters, and there are many of them, uh, wants to put some uh, weird white nationalist stuff on their their fight kit, and then maybe we find out that co-designing isn't all it's cracked up to be.
1: Where was Obama during Hurricane Katrina? Hmm? That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 215 and then look ahead to a busy schedule to close out the year where, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 17 weekends, 15 shows and 17 weekends Ooh, is what we're going to do. Okay. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.
0: I just think that maybe a lot of people would want their legacy fight kit to ask some of the hard questions about Sandy Hook that the media doesn't seem interested in asking.
1: Yeah, false flag. Uh Uh-huh. False flag, MMAgear.com. That sounds like something that should probably
0: exist already.